the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. And I'm Zoe. And this is the New Statesman's twice-weekly politics podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about the political battleground of crime and antisocial behaviour. Then you ask us, should the Labour Party be a broad church? We've said on this podcast for a while that crime is going to be one of the big political battlegrounds. And so it seems to be turning out. Last week, Keir Starmer did a speech on reducing crime, which is one of the missions for his idea of a Labour government. He wants to raise confidence in the police and criminal justice system to its highest levels, halve knife crime and violence against women and girls and reverse the collapse in the proportion of solved crimes. And, you know, in judging the numbers at the moment, those are all quite formidable tasks. Then the government announced its own crackdown on antisocial behaviour, including including plans to ban laughing gas and trialling hotspot police and enforcement patrols in areas with high rates of antisocial behaviour or what they're calling immediate justice schemes to punish people on the spot for this kind of behaviour. And somehow in these plans, landlords would be given powers to evict unruly tenants. Zoe, you wrote about these announcements. What did you make of Sunak's speech and also the audience's response to it? As you laid out, crime is becoming quite a big issue for voters. And I think particularly a really big issue in the Red Wall, which is obviously an area that both the Conservatives and Labour are going to fight over quite a lot. So within the Red Wall, about 64% of voters say that antisocial behaviour is a problem in their area. About the same amount say that the area they live in is becoming more dangerous. And about 65% of all of the electorate think that the government is handling crime badly. So this speech was really an opportunity for Sunak to set out that they are taking it seriously. 
Obviously, Starmer gave his speech on Friday and as if by magic, Sunak wanted to also make a series of announcements on the following Monday. I think what was really interesting is we saw there was a real kind of difference between the two speeches and I'm sure we'll get to that in a little bit. But I think in terms of what Sunak actually announced, some of it was taken almost directly from Labour's own proposed plan. So allowing victims to make choices about an offender's punishment, that's lifted directly from Labour's own proposed antisocial behaviour laws that have been put forward by the Justice Secretary Steve Reid back in December. So we can see a little bit of that, like they did with childcare, taking the blueprint of their policies and passing them off as their own. I think it's interesting. Sunak, a lot of the stuff he announced is immediate, it's visible. A lot of people in the red wall and in kind of blue areas are going to be pleased to see that this these kind of these yobs, these young people on the street, this antisocial behaviour is going to be cracked down on. He talked about laughing gas as a scourge on communities. We're talking about seeing nitrous oxide canisters on the streets. It very much is focusing on kind of what's visible, what's immediate, things they can do with the government machine at their disposal quite quickly. And it differed quite a lot from Starmer's offering, which was a lot more kind of looking at the sort of systemic issues and how they could halve incidents of violence against women and girls and a more sort of community justice approach. So I think it was I think it was interesting. I think it was partly reaction a reaction to Starmer's own announcement. As I said, it was a lot of kind of visible policies that they can implement straight away and will be kind of quick fixes. But in the long term, I'm not sure there was anything that substantial in there that kind of radical. In terms of focusing on visibility, you can see why Sunak wants to do it. Often when you speak to voters, they will say they don't see police around like they used to. And also there is a public realm issue with the state of what people's high streets and town centres and residential roads look like parks and things like you talked about the gas canisters you know people do mention that as, a, as an ir- irritant so I think there's a danger of the sort of political class being a little bit too snobby about these issues not mattering to people because they do but isn't it a bit of a danger for Sunak to try and unveil these policies that are supposed to have an immediate sort of visual impact because as we know Police forces around the country are very stretched and we're talking in the context of this Casey report into the Met Police, which shows how much they're failing in what should be their priorities to Londoners. How are they going to balance that with just making a show of walking around neighbourhoods? I think one of the things I would say is that all of these policies are being set out ahead of the local elections, where people are, as you say, looking around their local community seeing problems with their park or streets or what have you and want to see something done about it. But in local elections, you're not voting on a government's crime policy. You're voting for your local councillors. It's it's unusual to see these things rolled out just now. But I I think as Zoe was getting to there, I think one of the things that's haunting Rishi Sunak's pledge on crime is that they have such a sizable and questionable record on crime now, you know, and the whole situation where after 2010, 20,000 police officers were cut from forces across the country. And we've got to a situation where Boris Johnson came into government and those officers have now been pretty much replaced. But we're back to kind of square one and we've seen a rise in crime during that time. So there's like a big credibility question, Richard Sunak, as to whether we can credibly make these promises and expect voters will think that he'll deliver on them. But I think all parties are going very big. The Lib Dems included are going very big on crime ahead of the local elections. It's clearly coming up time and again is a massive issue with voters in all communities. And I think we have had Baroness Casey's report and it was not just been problems with the Met, there's been problems with other police forces also. And I think all parties had to respond. The government had to have a very strong response, some new policies just to be able to say something that responds to 
some of the dramatic headlines we're seeing. When you say there's a credibility question, I think that's at the heart of the problem with announcing these kind of policies. I mean, I feel really used to successive prime ministers coming out with their own measures against antisocial behaviour. I think I've spoken about this on the podcast before because I'm a bit obsessed with it. But Boris Johnson's announcement, I think, over one summer that there would be chain gangs of people who had broken the law or been involved in petty crime sort of on show in high-vis vests attached to each other in public. That was never going to happen. I feel like these kind of policies get announced and then just fizzle out. And the idea, for example, in these plans that the government has announced of beefing up police powers so that they can do more on the spot with people found with drugs or to be taking drugs. I was speaking to one police officer for a piece that I'm writing separately to this about policing in the UK. And they were saying that they didn't even have time to do the on the spot fines for people who literally, you know, are found with cannabis and you can smell the smell and you know what's going on. They don't have time to do that. And actually, a source at the Home Office was telling me it's up to individual police forces to to set their punishments for people when they're found in those kind of situations anyway. So it's not really the government forcing every officer to do this on every high street. I think it's interesting that both Lib and the Conservatives are talking about immediate justice or kind of, I think Steve Reed used the word something like swift retribution, which is very strong language. I think that's trying to answer a question in voters' mind as to whether they're seeing justice at all, and that's sometimes a capacity issue. And sometimes that's a case of where someone has been charged and it's taken up to a year or longer to get any case through the court. So there's this need for immediacy. But then, you know, you kind of look at something like the proposals for immediate justice, as well as the delivery question, which you mentioned. I think there's there's no broader analysis there of, for example, mental health issues. You know, so if if someone's expected to repair the damage after 48 hours, are they going to feel tainted or judged by that? Have they got other issues in their lives that might have taken them to that point is the situation more complex. And I think one of the things that the Labour Party is able to announce because they're in opposition and they have, they're able to have this broader critique of the picture, they have this punish, pre- prevent, reform kind of message where they can say, you know, we have to look at much, much more closely the causes of crime and mental health, you know, I think we've spoken about in the podcast before, police officers are often dealing with mental health issues more than they are issues of crime. And that goes to the health service as well as it does to community issues and police. Yeah, it's interesting when you get into the weeds of the government's announcement, there is a tacit acceptance that austerity in terms of cutting some of those services that you've mentioned, Rachel, is part of what's causing an increase in antisocial behaviour. So one of the measures is that 43 additional youth centres will benefit from an existing £90 million investment fund, basically accepting that cutting youth services does eventually have consequences in the future. And also channeling funds towards repairing park equipment, for example, revitalising town centres and high streets, that's all billed as part of the levelling up agenda, but really is trying to patch over the cracks that austerity caused in the public realm. And there's this whole idea in policing, isn't there, of the broken windows theory, which is that you have small issues locally, visible issues, broken windows, for example, as the theory goes, and this emboldens people or at least makes people feel like they have less respect towards their local surroundings and causes bigger issues with crime down the line. And austerity is such a big part of what we're seeing on our streets now. And there is a bit of a tacit acceptance of it from this government. And we've seen that in other areas as well, trying to reintroduce a kind of knockoff version of Sure Start Centres. We had an announcement on that last month. Yeah. Yeah. And this is going to be one of the big questions the next election, I think, is, you know, 19 million is not a lot of money for youth centres across the country. It kind of recognises that austerity has been a big part of the problem. I think that gets to the heart of what the big question is going to be at the next election. And I think this is something that Keir Starmer is going to 
repeat ad infinitum is do you want sticking plaster politics? Do you want a small state solution to what they would say many of the country's ills are? Or do you want a bigger agenda on spending? And that's kind of going to be the choice. Do you want a small state or do you want a full fat version? I think it's going to be the question that will be put to voters. Yeah, and talking of Starmer, I'm glad you mentioned him because, Zoe, you wrote about both Sunak and Starmer's speeches on crime. I'd like you to do a bit of a compare and contrast. What was Starmer saying that was different to Sunak's pitch? The kind of main difference that stood out to me was just kind of the tones they took. Starmer's speech was much lengthier. Shocker. (laughs) Yeah, he drew on his time as Director for Public Prosecutions. He offered a kind of deeper analysis of the way crime impacts minorities and working class communities. He was talking about the very real impact of families when their children are victims of violent crimes or the impact on families when they have antisocial behaviour in their area. Sunak's in comparison was, I mean, I think he literally was like, okay, well, the document's on your seat. And he briefly outlined it. And then he was like, now I have field questions. And it was a very kind of different tone. I think what was really interesting about Starmer's speech was that he very much set up a kind of us the them narrative where he was speaking directly to working class communities about the impact crime was having on them. And by doing that, he was criticising the Tories record. So he said, they don't understand what you're dealing with. Their kids don't go to the same schools. Nobody fly tips in their streets. The threat of violence doesn't stalk their communities. It was very, how can you trust these people with dealing with these issues when they don't understand the scale of the problem and they can't? So I thought that was quite an interesting aspect of Starmer's speech. The other thing, of course, was how he utilised his position as Director for Public Prosecutions in his favour. So often we've seen in PMQs and generally Sunak and other Conservative members have chucked that at him almost as if it's like not a good thing. He's this kind of lefty lawyer and he's a sir. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's how can he really represent these communities? But he very much was like, I know how to deal with these issues from my experience, from my time as director. And I thought that was interesting. He was kind of making a Reclaiming that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's always a risk with that us v them narrative because it's the whole whose side are you on question and like often voters might turn around and say, well, I'm actually on my own side and I don't I don't know if I really want to engage in any kind of class war conversation. But it's interesting that Labour's made that calculation to write into that. I think that's been successful for Albanese in Australia as well to just be much more proud of working class roots and to try to engage quite seriously with working class communities. Just very interesting. That's the political calculation they're making at this point, really. Yes, yeah. I mean, I suppose it's a little bit of a populist pitch, in obviously in very Starmerite tones. But the danger, of course, is that there's widespread public distrust in the police and the criminal justice system. And you'd imagine that would play into people's general distrust of politicians as well, regardless of their party. Zoe, you've been looking into the figures of how little public trust there is at the moment. So yeah, there's been a big decline in public trust in the police. And that will come as no surprise, I think, to our listeners. So Obviously, Louise Casey's report into the Met Police, I think a week or two ago now, you know, revealed a culture of misogyny, homophobia and racism. I don't think it was particularly surprising because it's been in the news so much, but it really laid bare how much of that is institutionalised in the police force. And on the back of all these kind of stories about police, there's been a huge decline in public trust. Redfield and Wilton Strategies polling found that just 26% of people have a positive view of the police in Britain and 40% of people actively feel negatively towards them. So we have this model of kind of policing by consent, but it's broken if almost three quarters of the electorate can't say they they really have a positive view Mm -hmm. of the police at all. So interesting, isn't it? Because then you get this sort of arms race between the two main parties of recruiting more police officers. (laughs) Yeah, 
One of the things that we haven't talked about is that on on top of the cops that the government's placed, like Lib wants to recruit like an extra thirteen thousand, I think it is like a, like a significant number. I don't know. One of the one of the risks I think of Starmer's approach is that like he's making this pitch towards working class communities, saying I'm on your side, I will fight for you, all this. But he's also been director of public prosecutions. He's also partially been very much a part of the establishment that we're seeing such huge levels of distrust in. It'll be interesting to see how they defend that as as the election gets closer, really, because it's a tricky position to take, but one that they you'd think that they'd weighed up as you want somebody who's got authority, respect and understanding in that area, but also they want him to also be seen on the public side. It's in position to put themselves in. I think it's interesting as well, because obviously there's this kind of decline in trust in the police in part due to all these kind of stories about the police, as I was saying before. But it's also there's also a decline in trust in the police because people don't feel that their crimes are being solved. Yeah. They see more yeah. crime in their local area. People say there's no point reporting that your bike's been stolen because nothing will happen. Yeah. And that's another reason why. So I think if Labour can, we'll, we'll probably try and lean into that because that seems more like a sort of austerity issue. And obviously there's the other element of the lack of trust in the police. But as you say, Rachel, that could present tricky ground because of Starmer's previous position. So I think it's going to be quite a sort of tight line to tread where they they need to criticise the legacy, but they also don't want to be too critical. Because as you say, if you just keep talking about how terrible the police are and then you're like, but good news, there's going to be 13,000 more of them. Yeah, yeah. Quite <laughs> ironic. OK, I'm sure we'll talk about this again in a future episode. After the break, we'll be answering your question about whether the Labour Party should be a broad church. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Weymouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You ask you us. Ask us. <laughs> Our question today is from an anonymous listener who asks, should the Labour Party be a broad church? So the context for this question is that Labour's governing body, the National Executive Committee, has voted to block Jeremy Corbyn from standing as a Labour candidate at the next election. Rachel, you wrote about this in yesterday's morning call, which all of our listeners should be subscribed to if they're not already. Uh, what's behind that decision? It's a really interesting one. It's worth going back to when Jeremy Corbyn lost the Labour whip. He's, he's been sitting as an independent in the House of Commons for well over a year, two years now. That was originally because he failed to apologise for saying that anti-Semitism allegations had been dramatically overstated for political reasons when he was leader of 
the party, but the motion that went to the National Executive Committee, which blocks him as a candidate, made no mention at all of anti-Semitism or the judgment by the Equality and Human Rights Commission. It was purely political. And it basically outlined how Jeremy Corbyn had taken the party to its worst defeat since 1935, and that he basically was a risk for them in terms of how the electorate would see them. And they thought that his presence within the campaign would damage the party's chances of winning an election. And it was the NEC's remit, the motion says, was to act in the party's political interests. And that was legitimate. It's quite quite an extraordinary motion, really. Quite risky, Um, isn't it? Because sorry if anyone's listening who is a diehard Ed Miliband fan, but he did lead the party to an unexpected defeat in 2015. And he is a key part of Keir Starmer's very visible front bench team. This is it. There's little by way of explanation. It's just that purely we're making this political judgment and we've had legal advice that it's legitimate to do this you're out. The sort of counterpoint to some of the criticism that's been thrown at Labour is that the former leader had put them in this position in that he was never going to be accepted within to the Parliamentary Labour Party because of the reaction to the EHRC report and the failure to apologise. So he was not going to be able to be readmitted to the Labour group, even if he did stand as a candidate and win. But it feels very much like a statement because the, you know, the alternative way that the party could have gone about doing things is to, because, you know, it's probably should have prefaced this by saying Jeremy Corbyn is still a Labour Party member. He's still a member of the Labour Party. He could have gone through the process that all of the other candidates have gone through, which would be to apply to the party and then be ruled out at shortlisting stage due to some of the due diligence matters. I mean, one of the things that the party could have used to to rule him out at shortlisting stage would have been, you know, I remember there was a comment on a Facebook comment on a picture of a, a drawing of Jewish people that he kind of questioned. And it was just claimed that was anti-Semitic at the time. And that's a process that a lot of other candidates have gone through, but the NEC have thought that it's perhaps there's some political advantage or, or that the, the, this was the best way of doing it and was to rule him out via a motion at NEC. I mean, potentially that's because he was a former leader and it is an extraordinary case, but yeah, it's quite quite stunning really. But to go to the question, should Labour be a broad church? I quarrel with the premise of this question because I kind of think... <laughs> we don't do this enough. Stephen used to do it all the time. <laughs> I think like, you know, yes, every political party under the sun is of course a broad church until it's on an issue when it matters. I mean, and, and when it's an electoral issue, I'm thinking in particular man 2019 election, Boris Johnson could not have gone into that election with a lot of the sort of remain second referendum MPs. That would have been a drag on his campaign. I don't think he would have won potentially the 80 seat majority that he did if he hadn't been seen as this get Brexit done. This is the issue. All of my MPs think this because divided parties don't win elections. It's a glib thing to say, but it's true. But I kind of think that all party members can have various different views on things, can have big debates apart. But if it's unless it's a policy issue, unless it's a live issue, then yeah, there can be there can it can be a broad church. But I guess it's whether the issue matters or not at the time. Yes, yeah. So you're referring to Johnson's purge of his moderates who were trying to yeah, get in the yeah, way. Yeah, he purged of all the Prince Remain backing MPs. But it's not without risk. You're absolutely right that divided parties don't win elections generally, but there could be a problem in the long term with this kind of strategy. I, I was speaking to a politician, a London Labour politician who's not a Corbynite, and they were saying that they were slightly concerned that the sort of diverse progressive voters that have amassed in urban seats could at some point be the next Scotland or Red Wall, votes that were taken for granted. And I'm not saying all of those voters and, you know, they weren't saying that all of those voters are are Jeremy Corbyn's supporters, but limiting how broad the church Labour is could potentially be taking those votes for granted at some point. 
point, although it doesn't look, at least to the Labour Party sort of establishment at the moment, as if they have anywhere else to go. What do you think, Zoe? Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's an interesting point, and I think it's something that you can also see in the parliamentary Labour Party. So mm. you can see, obviously, Labour is united at the minute around like that single issue of really wanting to win, which is fair enough, a worthy cause, a worthy cause, and therefore they are really keen to look really unified and to look really cohesive. But of course, as Rachel said, parties are a broad church. The Conservatives are a broad church. The Labour Party is a broad church, and I think. Once you, yeah, as you say, when you have a uniting issue, everyone can get behind it. But say Labour were to win or say Labour were to get a majority, once they've been united on that issue and won, or even if they lose, that's when the sort of dissenting voices might start coming out and people will say, OK, now let's press on with this issue. What are we going to do about this thing? And at that point, you see how even though you can be united on one issue, those sort of frictions below the surface don't necessarily go away. And as you say, I mean, it's the same with the electorate. A lot of Labour voters might be disappointed with the decision to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn. But I think a lot of Labour voters want to win. And so they're like, we're going to put this in a box and we're just going to try and see Starmer to victory. We've still got a long way to go till the general election and things could come out that could turn people away from the Labour Party. We've seen it happen before, Labour voters turning away. It's a tricky balance of trying to be united, but trying not to annoy the parts of the party that might feel slightly differently at the same time. Yeah. And putting him in a box, that's an interesting idea because actually Starmer has picked a lot of public fights with Corbyn since he became leader. And it's clear what he's trying to do there, which is distinguish himself from Labour's sort of recent history and unpopularity and that big election defeat and all of the baggage that came with the Corbyn leadership. But by picking these very public fights, it reminds people (laughs) at the same time that they were in the same shadow cabinet and there's photos of them together and these are the kind of things that Sunak likes and Johnson like to pull on at PMQs. So there's a bit of a risk there as well. In ostracising it, I think Starmer's trying to put as much distance between him and Jeremy Corbyn as possible. But I don't know if that necessarily completely neutralises the Conservative Party attack, because as you said, they've appeared in photo opportunities together. They sat on the front bench together. They were very much part of the same shadow cabinet. But I don't know. When I see broad church questioned as a concept, I think, what exactly does that mean? Because I think at the minute it seems to be left v right ends in terms of like, public spending and basically how far left on public ownership and issues like that he's prepared to go. But actually, Starmer's moved quite a lot in that area in any case. The Lib Party's for veil nationalisation, which in a kind of more assertive way than Ed Miliband even was. So, you know, it can get very subjective for different times, depending on kind of which faction happens to be up or down at that point. But when you boil down some of the policy issues that the party's at war with itself on, I don't think that they're as far apart as they seem to be in many cases. Mm, when you look no, at things right. like the climate investment pledge, like that's, a, that's a huge amount of spending that I don't think Ed Miliband would have necessarily advocated when he went to the polls in 2015. Yeah, that's right. You could see it from two sides, couldn't you? You could see Starmer as the sort of anti-strike, only questioning immigration policy on competence grounds kind of leader. Or you could look at Angela Rayner's Future for Work programme and the green investment stimulus and all of these other things that you mentioned, rail nationalisation, he's actually more radical than perhaps he looks on the surface. And actually, that brings me on to the next question, which is, does this idea of Labour being <laughs> of being a broad church come into the conflict that you wrote about, Rachel, this week about the Ming vases versus the front footers in the sort of party's operation? Does it come into that as well? Are the people who want the party to be a little bit more bold and radical, perhaps on a different sort of ideological spectrum from the Ming vases who you talk about who want to play it very safe ahead of the next election? 
Yeah, I think there's some tension with the Shadow Treasury team and the rest of the front bench, I think, because um, the kind the Ming vases, the ones who would like the party to be as careful as humanly possible before the next election, don't want to be seen to for the party to be losing control on on spending and because that's often seen as the Labour Party's Achilles heel. And then there are, I think there are others within the PLP who are pushing, who want the front bench to just be more bold about spending to fit in with this kind of global realignment where you're seeing countries across the world just absolutely throwing cash at the climate crisis and looking inwards in many cases potentially starting a trade war and I think that they want to see Labour kind of just being very open about that and saying yes we're very much for spending we think that's the solution of our times and then I think some of that tension between Ming vases and like front footers is I think some of those Ming vases are those that would like the Labour Party to run this kind of like similarly small target strategy where you don't wade into every argument you look safe stable you're not going to be too disruptive like you want to make politics quieter again and then there are others who think that you have to go out and aggressively push a progressive agenda pick fights and grab the microphone and make sure that you're heard all of your headlines are bigger better than your opponents so i think there's some tension there in terms of strategy and in terms of their spending offer so it's more, yeah, okay, more like how they talk about it than the actual yeah. substance, maybe. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. can you just remind us quickly, where does the Ming Vases nickname come from? <laughs> it's how Tony Blair's years between, I think it was 95 to 97, were described as he's tiptoeing across a polished floor carrying a Ming Vase, trying not to smash it, basically, and trying not to <laughs> ruin the party's chances of government. But I think there is this tendency within Labour, I think, to look back on that period and try and replicate it a little bit. And it is a different time. And voters will be looking for a different response and one that speaks very much to this moment. And they don't, there is a risk that the party becomes a little bit of a tribute act to that time when they might need to come up with a different equation if they want to really push forward for a victory. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And just lastly, what's happening in Islington North? Corbyn's running anyway, right? There's some of the biggest hints ever. He's flirting with the issue as much as possible, I think, potentially to see just how much interest there would be who would want to run and lose. Yeah, he's dropping hints that he might be running. (laughs) Okay, and that will be an interesting race to cover then if he does decide to. And in the meantime, while we wait to hear whether or not that will happen, listeners should have a read of Ben Walker's polling piece on whether or not he'd have a chance of winning as an independent in that seat. Thanks so much for listening. And you can send your questions in to newstatesman.com forward. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? 
How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search disorder wherever you get your podcasts. Slash you ask us. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Rachel Wearmouth and Zoe Grunewald. We'll be back on Monday when we'll be talking about the rise of social conservatism. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. We're produced by May Robson. 